I was going to say uh, Happy New Year in Iranian, but I've already forgotten it. I don't, I don't know about you, but it's useless, isn't it? It's really bad. There's no wonder I'm so rubbish at foreign languages and stuff, is it? Anyway, Happy New Year. And, uh, you know, it's a significant day in our year uh, if you are Iranian. If you were American, a significant day in your year might very well be Thanksgiving. Uh, Thanksgiving doesn't mean a lot for us over here in the UK, but it's a very big deal in, in the States. Uh, Luke and Sarah would find it was a big deal. Uh, for us, I suppose Christmas is a big deal. Uh, not long now. My wife would like me to remind you, I'm sure. Um, you know, it's time to, time to start planning. Never too early, uh, she'll tell you. Um, but when you think about what is a, an important day, what is a significant day, uh, sometimes Easter kind of gets a little bit lost in the scheme of things. But in actual fact, Easter is, in my view at least, way more important than Christmas. If you go on the internet and you, you do a, a search, you know, top ten days that change the world or something like that, most of them have have the death of Jesus as number one or number two, somewhere around there. Sometimes the birth of Jesus, sometimes the death of Jesus. It depends. Uh, I mean, we do celebrate the birth of Jesus at Christmas, but the and the arrival of God on earth is a unique and an incredible thing, but without Easter, without the, the death and what happens then, that doesn't have as much of a significance in one way. Uh, so, as we are coming up to Easter, as of that time of year, we're going to take a couple of weeks to look at those events in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where Ian was hanging out a, a couple of weeks ago. These are actual physical places where uh, our Lord and Saviour trod and uh, where many other people have walked, including now Ian Jones's size nine shoes or whatever they are. Um, and we're going to stay in the Gospel of Mark. Joan very kindly read for us from the Gospel of Mark. We were there with Ben last week. Uh, you know, Mark's description of what happens very short and punchy. You know, it's all facts. It's all bang, 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 bang. Uh, you can you can understand when you read a bit about Peter in the Bible how he's such a kind of abrupt, aggressive kind of guy. It's like, come on, let's go. And he's, he's, the book kind of reads like that in one way. You know, come on. Uh, no nonsense kind of guy, um, and uh, because I'm greedy, and I'm just be honest with you, I'm quite greedy. Don't buy me lots of these drinks, you know, because it's just a nightmare. You know, I've eaten them all by about eleven thirty. Yeah, because I'm greedy. We're actually going to take quite a big chunk of scripture here, okay? And I just can't bear to not pick up on some bits of it, you know. So I hope we don't get a some indigestion because I'm greedy but we'll go through we're going to we're going to really think mostly about Mark chapter 15 uh, sort of verses 33 down to 41 I guess but we're going to we're just going to briefly skip across the other stuff that Jonah's reading uh, and some of the other stuff there just to give us the background just because we really want to uh, pick up on some of this great stuff that's in there. Uh, sometimes we do that, I guess, just just take a step back a bit and look at a big, bit of a bigger picture. So really we're going to think about these three main points on the screen there. Um, but before we get to them, we'll dig into a little bit of background, a few other little bits and pieces that Joan was reading for us. Uh, and we're starting off with... Uh, it says there, you can see there... Uh, before the Sanhedrin. This is uh, one of two trials that Jesus went through. This is the this is a you might think of this as a religious trial. Later on, he has a, a, a sort of a civil uh, trial. He's been arrested. It's still night time, and he's taken before the Jewish authorities. He's led in by the the high priest. Uh, and look there in verse fifty five. They're looking for someone who can who can testify against him. Uh, they're looking for some witnesses. Uh, they're in the high priest's house. Guess what? They're mostly the high priest's mates. And they're all kind of want to please the boss, you know, so they're trying to perhaps, oh yeah, he said this, he said this, but as it says there, 
none of them agreed. Uh, they were keen, but um, they couldn't find two people to agree. Not surprisingly, Jesus hadn't broken any of their laws. Jesus had not broken any of the religious laws. And so there are no witnesses. Uh, the high priest stand up, he's getting fed up of this. The high priest stand up and he says to Jesus, you know, haven't you got anything to say to all this stuff? And Jesus just remains silent. You know, he doesn't want to dignify this charade in any, in any kind of way. But, but then the high priest asks a question that Jesus feels he has to answer. You see there, uh, down there in uh, verse 61, uh, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Two questions in that. Are you the promised one to save Israel? And are you the Son of God? And notice Jesus is straight in there. Yeah, yeah, he says, I am. No messing around, I am goes on, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. They said, yes, I am. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And he goes on in this statement here, uh, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. If you're making notes today, just scribble down, scribble down to... Two other pieces of scripture here. Psalms 110 verse 1. Psalms 110 verse 1. And Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14. Both of those passages refer to that. Both of those passages are talking to that. Jesus is saying, yeah, you remember that stuff from Daniel and Psalms? That's about me. That's about uh, the idea of the Son of Man. Uh, it does refer to the Son of Man coming and judging all the world. God's job. Okay, uh, Jesus has just said, "I'm the Son of God." Uh, also, in Daniel seven, it talks about coming on uh, the Son of Man coming on clouds. Again, again, to be clear, we're not talking about clouds that rain water, water, and which are technical expression, water vapor, isn't it? Yeah, we're not talking about those sort of clouds. The clouds they're talking about in Daniel 7 is the clouds of the presence of God. Okay? Uh, so this is a, a Hebrew idea when, when in the desert the Israelites were following a cloud, all that sort of stuff. That was the very cloud of the very presence of God. Those clouds in Daniel 7 are the presence of God. So he's saying it's the Son of Man coming on the presence of God. Again, uh, very clear here what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am divine. Uh, I'm going to come to the earth in the very glory of God and judge the whole earth. And, you know, some people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. He never claimed to be divine. No, he did. Okay? And it is very clear there that he does. If you really want to be sure that he does, look what the high priest does straight away. You know, he's a dignified kind of guy. What does he do? He tears his clothes why do we need to hear any more witnesses? He asks. You've heard the you have heard the blasphemy. Yeah. Everyone there, all the Jewish leaders, are very clear what Jesus has just said. He has just said, "I am the Son of God," and that that he says, "What more do we need to hear? Why? Because the sentence is death. The sentence is punishable by death. Just that's it. It's it is a sentence of death." But there's, Tim Keller points out there's a real paradox here. I don't know why I do that. It's my paradox sign. There is a real paradox here. Think about this. The high priest and the council, in all their pride, have just put Jesus on trial and they're trying to condemn him to death. And they've said, okay, you've committed blasphemy, you are all going to die. But Jesus has just told them that he is the ultimate judge. He's the one who's actually going to judge the whole earth. He's just told them that when he's told about him coming on, on the clouds of heaven. So the one who they are trying to judge 
is actually going to be the one who judges them finally. What irony, what an incredible idea that they, in their petty way, are trying to judge him when he's giving them all the clues that they know, they know the scripture really well, that they know to say, you know, I'm actually going to be the ones judging you. It's a rhetorical question. It made me think, what will they say to him when they stand in front of him at the second coming? I don't know. Um, uh, but, but as I say, we're not going to spend too much time in this. Peter then uh, spends some time in the uh, in the courtyard of the high priest's house. He had some connections, presumably. We don't quite know. Uh, and Peter, as Jesus had told him he would, denies him three times. Um, again, there's a, there's a whole there's a whole sermon in that. Let, let's just say that whoops, let's just say there that that Jesus had a fear of man. Yeah, he was more concerned with his own life at that point, with it actually uh, not denying Jesus, despite all these big protestations to say, "Yeah, I've got your back, Jesus." You know, I'm never going to let you down. You know, only a few hours later, he has denied him. Um, but let's also just remember it's not it's not in this part of the gospels here. But we we'll also remember that Jesus is forgi- uh, Peter is restored and forgiven by Jesus. Goes on goes on to lead the early church. Thank goodness we serve a God who, despite all our failures, picks us up, dusts us down, and sets us off in the right direction. And Peter is a great example of that. And he doesn't again then deny Jesus. In fact, Christian tradition says he goes to his death on a cross um, for not denying Jesus. Uh, but we'll move on. Jesus heads into his second trial. So why two trials? Well, the, the Jewish council in the first one, they don't have authority to commit someone to death. They want to. They want to, they want to say, Jesus, you're going to die. They don't have the authority at this point because... Rome is in charge. Okay, they've been, Israel's been invaded, the Roman army is there, the Romans are in charge, and so the Jewish council know, okay, we can say it, but we can't do anything about it. So they go off to this chap called Pilate. So let me read for you uh, very quickly from chapter 15. Uh, Very early in the morning, the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law and the whole hands of the Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and turned him over to Pilate. So Pilate is the head of the Roman authorities. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. Again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the feast to to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in an uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing that it was out of envy that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one who you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away to the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they mocked him, they took off the purple robe put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. So um, so Jesus is here in front of Pilate. Uh, he's got, Pilate's got control of the Roman army. 
uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, he's the representative, the personal representative of the Roman Emperor. Uh, you could say he was the, the big cheese uh, in the area. Um, uh, and Roman, in one way, Pilate is not that worried in one way whether he's the son of God, but he really does care if Jesus is claiming to be the king of the Jews. Because right now, the emperor Caesar has got that job, and so he's going to be really upset if Jesus is saying he's got that he's got that role as well. But Jesus says yes. He says yes. You are, you know, almost like good question. Yes, I'm the king of the Jews. Uh, but then all the religious leaders are chipping in again. Oh, we did. You know, you ever seen little kids who are, who are trying to dob their mates in? Dob their kids. Oh yeah, and he did this, and he did that. Oh, and do you know he did this, and do you know he did that. Oh, yeah. A bit like that, you know. All the all the all the all the, all the Jewish leaders are. Like, oh, and he did this. And Pilate's looking at him. He says, to "Jesus, aren't you going to say anything?" And Jesus says, "Just sign." Um, as well as being the big cheese, I suppose he's a big cheese in another way. You know, he's kind of a. In the end, he won't stand up with the courage of his convictions. He says, "There," he says, "He's done nothing wrong." Uh, verse verse 14, chapter 15. Why? What crime has he committed? But they're all shouting, crucify him! And so, perhaps in a cowardly way, perhaps he was just being politically sensible, I don't know. He orders him to be flogged and then crucified. And they shout out, the crowd shouts out, crucify him. Those people who a week before were praising him and saying, here comes the king. Here comes the Messiah. A week later, crucify him, crucify him. And we could talk a lot more about the mockery and the torture of Jesus. Um, Perhaps I would encourage you to read read Psalm 22. You read Psalm 22 and it's just like you're reading what's what's going on here. Written hundreds of years before, hundreds of years before. But really want to move on to, to this next next part. Let me read you for this next part of the Bible. Starting in verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days... Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He said, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling to Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and Joseph's, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. 
Many of the women had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Leave it off there. Uh, so out of all the parts of the Bible, all the different parts, this part and the parts that talk about the death of Jesus and his resurrection are the most important. I want to suggest to you these are the parts of the Bible that are the most significant. It's all important. This is the most significant. Why? Because this is where reality changes. This is where the history of the world, the ten most important days, the most important day, because this is where reality changes in a moment. Like that. Before this, the relationship between humans and gods was a distant one. Before God was a distant one. God was far off. He was angry. He was unknowable. At this moment, God comes near and shows us his love for us and shows himself to us, at least in part. How do we know all this? Let's let's go back. Let's look in the text on this. Darkness comes over the land. Okay, some people say, oh, it was a, there's nothing supernatural about this. This was a solar eclipse or something like this. No, this is not a natural phenomenon, which is always a hard word to say. Phenomenon. Reminds me of the Muppets. Phenomenon. Phenomenon. Um, A natural phenomenon. we know that these events happen during the, the Passover, the Jewish festival. That festival always takes place at a new moon. Okay? It is impossible to have a solar eclipse at a new moon. Okay? We know this was not a solar eclipse. It cannot happen. We know that it's not that. Another, The, the other most likely uh, reason for in, in that part of the world, we don't really get them around here, uh, is uh, sandstorms. I don't know if you've seen them on the TV, on the nature programs, where this huge sandstorm comes in and the sky goes dark because it is just like the whole area is full of sand, that sort of stuff. Uh, Passover takes place during the wet season. That's very unlikely to happen. You know, there's been moisture on the sand, the the wind's not going to pick it up. Um, So, actually, let me just go back. We do sometimes have sandstorms in this house because someone was, uh, someone next door but one from us has been. Uh, pointing his house yesterday and he's using an angle grinder and boy has there been a sandstorm in our front garden there is a layer of sand in our front garden like nothing on earth so let's just say no we do get sandstorms in this country um, but not like that the, so this is not a natural phenomenon this is uh, stop laughing this is supernatural this is God doing something and you're looking at the you know you're looking at the people there you're looking at the the chief priests and everyone standing around aren't they going to say that's a bit odd I just I just keep going back to these guys I don't know what it is I keep going back to the chief priests and and the guys they know the scripture they know scripture backwards and they're looking at this stuff and they're going you know anyway come back to that in a bit um the Bible says, if the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? That's Matthew 6, 23. The Jewish leaders are looking at the Son of God who, who has been described as the light of the world. We sang a moment ago, light of the world, you step down into darkness. But what they're seeing is darkness. They're seeing someone who they believe is a blasphemer and who is evil. They're thinking that, they are thinking that the Son of God, the light of the world, is darkness. And it says, it says there in that, in that quote from, from that passage from Matthew. And again, this is hard to understand at the first reading, but it's, it's worth getting this idea. If the light within you in, is darkness, how great is that darkness? If you believe that the, the good things of God are actually bad or evil, then you are in great darkness. Uh, it's one thing not to recognise the light, okay? You know, it's not one thing not to perhaps recognise God and the work of God. But your spiritual state is much worse if, if that is where you're thinking and that's how you feel. Uh, so how do you see Jesus? 
Do you see him as light? Do you see him as darkness? Are you not sure what you see him as? It's a good question to, to ponder. Um, and then Jesus makes this uh, strange statement in Aramaic, uh, which was his the language of his culture. It was his day-to-day language. Again, that is a direct quote from Psalm 22. Have a look at Psalm 22. I'll go there now. Um, although, inter- just, just, I wasn't going to do this, but interestingly, as an aside... Uh, some people say, well, okay, you know, the Bible's all wrong. Da, da, da. Um, uh, somebody's just written there what it says in Psalm 22. No, they haven't. Because in Psalm 22, it's written in Hebrew, the original Jewish language. In here, it's written in Aramaic. It's different in different language. There are someone's, this is not just a, a construction put together. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It, it would be hard... I, Look, I'm not a, I'm not an actor. I'm not a drama guy. I can't give that the full impact it, it needs, you know. But it is when you read that, I just hear the deep, painful, heartfelt, agonising, destroyed language of someone who has, from their heart, just said, "You have." forsaken me. In one sense that the darkness that came in is associated with that. In one way that is a supernatural sign of God turning his face away. Again we sang the Father turned his face away. Uh, and, and that is we can't really get how big a deal that is. Luke, uh, Luke Ben talked about this last week. Uh, yeah, we, we often hear people on the streets, and it always bugs me, but you hear people on the streets sometimes say, oh God, you know, or text OMG, or, or those kind of things, cursing the name of God. And, and okay, I, it is true, I suspect they don't really understand what they're doing. But when Jesus is saying that, he is, that is just packed with, with meaning, and, and he just really, uh, he is so, desperately, agonizingly hurt. He is seen at such pain and agony. You know, remember, Jesus has been united with God the Father forever, for all eternity, from before the beginning of time. He's been united with the Holy Spirit perfectly for all eternity since before the beginning of time. And that has been perfect love. Love that we cannot really grasp. Uh, perfect approval. Uh, glorifying each other. You know, you know, God saying, oh, there's Jesus. He's my son. He is the best. And Jesus going, that's my father. He's just fantastic. And that just being a, a perfect relationship. Three persons in one being. We call that the Trinity. Uh, as, as Christians, the idea of three persons but in one being. Uh, a three in oneness. Um, we we try to find analogies for what that means, but there are no good analogies because he's God. God is not like anyone else. Okay, you, you can't get so and say it is the Trinity is like this because there is nothing like the Trinity. God is is unique in that way. Um, but this eternal, loving, complete, perfect relationship uh, that, that we can only really begin to get the the maybe the edges of at this moment that is is broken this jesus has only ever experienced total approval from god he said it is when jesus is baptized and on the mount of transfiguration jesus says uh, god says this is my beloved son now he's not calling him my beloved son he has turned away and not only is he not experiencing the Father's love and approval, instead he's experiencing the full weight of the anger of God. He is experiencing the full weight of a, of a, the full weight of the anger of a perfect God against all the rebellion and sin. And the impact is devastating. You know, sure, crucifixion is a terrible way to die. It is an awful and painful way to die. 
But in comparison to what Jesus is experiencing there from the wrath of God, it is nothing. It is agony beyond our ability to understand. Why have you forsaken me? He says. In one way, Jesus already knows the answer to that question. He knows what's going on here. He knows the Father's will. Yet the depth of what he's going through, the pain of what he's going through, forces him to ask that question. In the same way uh, when Ben was talking about the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows the Father's will, and yet he prays, please take this cup from me. He still asks, because of the suffering he's going through. He already knows that question, but in one way it's also a question for the people around the cross to answer. So Jesus already knows the answer. But for the people who are around the cross, maybe that is a question they need to answer. I want to suggest to you it's also a question, it's also a question that we need to answer. Why was Jesus forsaken at this point? Can you imagine, well, Can you imagine what it would be like to experience that punishment ourselves? Can you imagine what it would be like to experience that sense of abandonment ourselves? And the thing is, the thing is, we deserve it. The thing is, I deserve it when I look at my life and compare it against what God wants for me. I have to say, to be honest with you, I deserve that. I deserve to be where he is I deserve for God to turn his father away from me to abandon me Uh, there's a song isn't there were you there when they crucified my Lord and in one sense yeah we all were we all were were either on the cross or were perhaps looking um, but that is the punishment that we deserve it should have been me on the cross. But God, praise God, God and the Father and Jesus do not want us to face that terrifying prospect. So instead, instead of experiencing that, Jesus came and died to save us from that. That is why Christians called him their saviour, because he saved us. He stood in our place. Because he died and saved Christians from hell. And that is it internal separation from God and Jesus wants us then to trust in his sacrifice on the cross it was enough he did enough to save us there's nothing else that needs to be done he doesn't want us to say no I'm going to try to save myself because we can't, it'll be impossible he he wants us to say I'm going to trust you, please save me That was only half of the work he did. I'll leave you with a cliffhanger. No spoilers. We'll talk about the other half he did next week. But uh, also, as we were saying, we'll move on, the curtain was torn in two. In the temple, the curtain was torn in two. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a small child, and I think about curtains, I always go back to when I was a small child, and I had the box room in the house, so three bedrooms only, I had the box room in the house, and there was a, don't wish to be nasty about my mum and dad's interior decorating taste, but there was a nasty curtain. I mean, it was not in any way something, uh, certainly a small child, even a teenager, would want to be associated with. Um, uh, it was certainly making a visual statement. Okay, This is not the kind of curtain we're talking about here. Okay, this is not the kind of curtain that you can pick up from Boundary Mills. Okay, this is a very different curtain. This is hanging up inside the temple. Uh, uh, According to a historian of the time, uh, his estimates were that the curtain was about 60 feet high. Okay, that's 18 meters in new money. Uh, And about four inches thick. So this is a curtain that's four inches thick. 100 millimetres, new money, anybody's talking about that. I mean, this is a big curtain. You can't just, like, tear it. You know, it doesn't work that way. 
but as well as being a, why was it a really big curtain? Because it was very important and symbolic to the Jewish people. This curtain represented the separation between God and man. So the curtain separated the rest of the temple from what was called the Holy of Holies, right in the middle. And only one person ever went into the Holy of Holies. And that was the high priest. And he only went once a year on what was the, for the Jew, in the Jewish calendar, the holiest day of the year. Going into what the Israelites believed was the very presence of God. And he went in to atone for the, for the, for the sin of the, of the whole nation. You can read about that in the Old Testament in, in, in Leviticus. So this is the man who's supposed to be the holiest man in Israel, I say supposed to be, supposed to be the holiest man in Israel, going in on the holiest day of the year into the holiest place in the world, and he only does it once a year. And the curtain represents that, it represents that separation of God from man. And this is the curtain that's just gone top to bottom, torn in two. Can't see, you can't have done that by accident. I mean, it's four inches thick for crying out loud. This is, this is not something you've caught in the Hoover and brought down. I mean, this is enormous. This is again supernatural. This, if this is the symbol of separation of God from man, at the moment of Jesus' death, saying this has removed that separation. That symbol has been, the curtain has been torn. It has been taken away from that there is no more separation the barrier that has existed between God and man has been removed we don't need the earthly high priest anymore to go once a year into the temple because we now have we now have a high priest who is Jesus and the good news is he's God so it's not about being an intermediary anymore we have this high priest the very the, the one who knows the very heart of God. And he has come near to us. He's not now far away. Oh, we don't need ceremonies. We don't need uh, all that stuff that they used to do. He's our saviour. His access is right there. Uh, he's replaced the, the, the sacrifices that the Jewish law required. You know, you had to sacrifice various animals at very time, various times. The Lamb of God, the very Lamb of God has come and paid the final sacrifice. The only sacrifice we need, once and for all. The relationship of God has now changed. Instead of just being the God of the Jewish people, he's now the God of anybody who comes to him. Anybody who puts their trust in him. And this is all achieved, and many more things, many, many more things are achieved when Jesus died that's why we said this is the most critical section in the bible so much changes surely this is the most important day in history and yet sometimes we don't get the wonder we don't get the power and the wonder american author called john updike some of you may be familiar with he said our brains are no longer conditioned for reverence and awe our brains are no longer conditioned for reverence nor our instant TV news, CGI effects, cynical, postmodern, social media, conspiracy theory, addicted brains. Don't get the wonder. And yet our lack of appreciation of that, our lack of insight doesn't change the wonder. It doesn't change what happened. It doesn't change the fact that reality has been altered forever at this moment. As I was saying, what are these folks thinking when they stood round the cross? As they're going round, what are these folks thinking? The Bible tells us there's different groups of people standing around these events. What's going through their minds? Well, uh, the high priest and the counsellor there, we, we, we saw that a moment ago. Uh, in, in the, initially, I think, they would be thinking, got him. Yeah, we've finally got this guy who's been a pain in our backside, for all these months, preaching all kind of stuff around Galilee and Judea, we've got him. We've nailed him. 
because he was a heretic in their view. Uh, most scholars view them as a pretty cynical crowd, I think. They're concerned about protecting their own reputation. But of course he's not the son of God. As I was saying, the scribes and the Pharisees really knew their Old Testament. I mean, really in a way that would put us all to shame. They know it like the back of their hands, and I cannot help but thinking. As these events are going on, they can't know, hmm, hmm, that sounds a lot like Isaiah. That sounds a lot like the book of Psalms. Hmm. If they did, could they overcome their their pride of what had just done to say, maybe we made a mistake. Maybe that was the Son of God. I don't know. In, in the book of Acts, he goes on to say later on that, that a number of the religious leaders did become followers of Jesus. So I just pray that, that many of those guys would have, would have done that. Um, also mentions Simon of Cyrene. We 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 uh, jumped over him fairly quickly. Where is he? There he's in, in uh, uh, verse twenty three. Twenty three. Um, the man who who carried the cross. He's probably still around. He's carried the cross to 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 Calvary to Golgotha. Um, he's a bystander. He was a bystander. He wasn't there to follow Jesus or to follow anyone else yet he's been caught up in the story he's been caught up in this in this dramatic moment he's seen Jesus in his most crucial hour Christian tradition is that he became a follower of Jesus certainly the fact that the both of his sons are mentioned there well that's verse 21 <laughs> um, both of his sons are mentioned the father of Alexander and Rufus Sounds as though Mark's saying to the, the readers, you know these guys. And that's a strange place to put in a couple of names. He's saying, you know, Simon, Simon, do you ever introduce people like that? You know, uh, oh, this is uh, Sam, you know, he's, he's the, uh, he's the uh, son of and the brother of those people, you know those people. You know. It sounds like Mark's doing the same thing there. Uh, so they probably became Christians. Um, they've been caught up in the drama. They weren't expecting to be there. And yet suddenly they're in the very centre of the death of the Son of God. I said, just, why? What were they thinking? I don't know. We're pretty sure Peter's there. Uh, the Gospel of Mark is his uh, recordings, his, his, resurrec- his recollection, what's the word, of, uh, too many words being with wreck. Uh, the recollection. Anyway, what he remembers about uh, Jesus and what was going on there. Um, uh, he's been making all these brash, proud claims about, you are the Christ, and and I'm going to be with you to the end. I'm going to suffer what you're going to suffer. Um, and he's now denied Jesus, and the whole thing looks like it's falling to pieces. You know, what what was Peter thinking? What were the other disciples thinking? You know, you're coming into town at the beginning of the week, like like Donald Trump coming into a new state thinking you're going to win the election or whatever, and and at the end of the week it's all all in pieces. It's all absolutely destroyed. Oh, he's dead. Oh, what are we going to do? And what do we do now? You know, it's the... We thought he was the Christ and we thought he was going to save Israel and now he's, he's dead. Are we next? Are we going to be handing over to, do we need to go hide? Are we going to be next? You know, God bless them. How often did Jesus say to them, I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders and I'm going to die? Anyway, it's a different story but a couple of days later. Right at the end of that passage there, there's also three women named uh, specifically. It also says there were other women there. Um, uh, one of the other gospels says Mary, who was the, the mother of Jesus, was there. Uh, they followed Jesus. They've supported Jesus. They've believed what he said uh, throughout his ministry. Yes, often in the background, sometimes not. Sometimes there's, there's interchange with them. Uh, always uh, sincere in their love and their belief of Jesus. And they are devastated. This leader who we've loved 
is being cruelly put to death in front of us. If you're the mother of Mary, what are you, uh, Mary the mother of Jesus, what are you thinking? Your son is dying in front of you in agony. What are you thinking? And I don't even know what to think about that. Uh, another witness here is the, the Roman centurion. I mentioned here, mentioned here is a witness. Uh, realistically, this man is a professional killer. You know, you do not to get a job like that without quite regularly killing people. Uh, often, torturing people. This he hasn't got. The, this is not his first crucifixion. I am pretty sure. He's overseen quite a number of brutal executions. He may have been fighting actually in, in, in combat uh, as well. And yet he looks at the death of this man and says, this is the son of God. One writer points out that this is the, bear in mind he's not a Jew. One writer points out this is the first man in Mark who says, this man is the son of God. Okay. Peter's called him the Christ, but it wasn't, it wasn't clear to the Jews that the Christ was also the Son of God. So when Peter says he's the Son of God, he's not necessarily saying he is divine. But this guy says, yeah, he's the Son of God. There's one more witness. That's God. God was a witness there. He's everywhere at all times, and so that's true of everything, I suppose. But what, what, what is, you know, the, he's witnessing the death of his son. Remember, he's called him my beloved son. He's poured out his anger and his wrath on him, and he is dying. What was he seeing? I'm sure he's seeing, because he's God, thousands and tens of thousands of things. And he's seen them all perfectly. We, we only see a few things dimly, perhaps. But I want to suggest to you a few things that he was witnessing. Because he is seeing this very differently to how those other witnesses are seeing it. God has seen him, God the Father has seen himself pouring out all of his just anger and wrath onto his only son. Knowing exactly what that means. Knowing exactly what was going on. Knowing exactly the agony that that would mean. And seeing the impact of that, what the song says there, that awesome weight of sin. He's seeing that. He understands what's going on. He's seeing his beloved son obediently dying. Obediently dying in more pain than anyone has ever or will ever know. He saws him. He's not bottling it. He is obediently dying. Not only is he obediently dying, but he's doing it because that is perfectly the Father's will for his Son. Because even at this point, Jesus is still perfectly following his Father's will. God sees Jesus changing the relationship between God and his people. He sees that happen. He sees the curtain being torn in two, and he knows exactly what's just happened. Now, all these, all these people I used to talk through, the prophets, the chief priests, all those guys, all those sacrifices that we used to get, that sort of stuff, don't need that now. Because we've got my son. And he's just done something absolutely and utterly amazingly powerful. He saw his son saving a people to become his church. He saw... People being saved and being adopted as sons and daughters. He saw his son fulfilling prophecies and promises from the Old Testament. He saw lots of many, many other things. But still it was his son dying. He was also seeing all these events knowing it was not the end of the story. None of those other people knew that. None of those other all those other witnesses thought that's it. It's all over at this point. Game over. Job done. No. God is seeing it, saying, "No, you wait. Three days time. Something incredible is going to be happening." But no spoilers. Nothing. I think that God has a question for you this afternoon, and it's the most important question you'll ever have to answer. And the question is, 
What do you think about my son? What do you think about my son? You might answer that lots of different ways. There's many different answers to that question. But perhaps you're like one of those witnesses. Perhaps you are like one of the religious leaders. You suspect that the good news about him is true, but maybe you can't bear to admit it. Because if you did, you might have to admit that you've made mistakes. You might have to change your life. You might have to change the way you live. Don't let that pride drag you down. Answer from your heart as to what you think, as to who you think Jesus is. Perhaps you're a bit like Simon of Cyrene. You've, you've recently become, perhaps even today, you've somehow been pulled into this story of Jesus. Somehow you've been pulled in from wherever and pulled into this story and you're not expecting to be asked that question. You, you, you know, you, you've been going about your business. You've the words there coming from the country, whatever it is, and then suddenly you're caught up in this in Jesus's life, hearing it here in the Bible. Perhaps you're being drawn to him. How are you going to answer that question? Maybe, maybe you associate more with Peter or one of the disciples, someone who's followed Jesus. Perhaps you've followed. Jesus for a long time. And it's got to a point where you feel you have dead-ended. As though there's nothing more. And you're wondering what to do next. Whatever reason that may be. Perhaps you just got to a point where you're like, you know, it's all over. Remember what you believe about Jesus. Remember in your heart what he has done for you. All those truths you've learned over the years. Rely on that. Do not let those current circumstances pull you down. Perhaps you feel a sense of helplessness in life circumstances, a bit like the, the women who were um, witnesses there. Perhaps you are uh, experiencing things in your life that give you a sense of, this is all happening to me, I have no control, I, I am helpless to what is going on. God knows that, Jesus knows that. Put your faith and your trust in him. You might not be able to control what is going on. He can. You might not be able to control what's happening in your life. He understands what it is. He understands its purpose. Put your trust in him today. Maybe you're more like the Roman centurion. Perhaps your professional uh, experience, you are uh, you are an observer of things, you know how things fit together, you are in control, you are sorted out, you are a sorted out person, you have your your finger on the button but then you look at these events and you go no, something's happening something's happening here which is different I need to perhaps step out of my comfort zone and say something I need to step out of my comfort zone and and do something. Perhaps that is you. Perhaps you see, perhaps for the first time, the truth of the death of Jesus. I don't know if you identify with those. Uh, there are, uh, you may do, you may not. I don't know. Which, which, whichever of those witnesses you identify with, or whether it's not, just stop for a moment. Perhaps this is something to do tonight. Stop for a moment. Perhaps read that story again. Stop looking at it through your own eyes. Looking at it through the eyes of God. Try and see what he is seeing there. And then answer his question. What do you think about my son?